Okay, I think let's make a start. Uh, welcome to the Department of Government's event in our uh, New World Disorder series. My name is Chandran Krukathas. I'm the head of the Department of Government, and I'm very pleased to um, host today my friend and colleague, Sumantra Bose, who will be speaking to you today uh, on Modi's India, Erdogan's Turkey, and the crisis of the secular state in the non-Western world. Um, Sumantra is a graduate of Amherst College and completed his PhD in, at Columbia in political science. He was also an MSc graduate of the LSE sometime, I think, in the 1990s. And uh, he's been with us in the Department of Government for a number of years. Um, he's the author of many books. I asked him just before we came down, is this your fifth book? And he said, no, it's my seventh. And, uh, and that doesn't include a number of other volumes that are non-academic. So we have a very distinguished speaker. Uh, he's going to talk to us for about uh, an hour, and then uh, we'll, we'll field questions from the audience. So, so Antra, the, the floor is yours. Uh, thanks, Chandran, and thank you uh, for coming out uh, this evening. Um, you can see the subject of today's talk um, displayed up here. And it's derived from this book, which I recently published uh, just this year uh, with uh, Cambridge University Press. Um, it's essentially about the rise and the fall of the secular state in the non-Western world, um, of which India and Turkey have been the two exemplars in the 20th century. Um, <clears throat> let me start out with a personal disclosure, you know, nothing too startling or scandalous. Um, although this is a new book, which I wrote last year in the course of 2017, uh, it's been on my mind for about 20 years now, uh, from the time, in fact, that I was finishing up as a graduate student at Columbia, um, that's because I belong to the generation that lived through and directly witnessed and experienced the erosion and decline of the Indian secular state through the 1980s and the 1990s. Um, and I realized over that time that this was a make-and-break issue, perhaps, perhaps indeed the make-and-break issue for my country uh, going forward. Uh, my interest in Turkey also dates to my graduate student days in the first half of the 1990s. I was initially <clears throat> interested uh, in the Kurdish ethno-nationalist revolt uh, that gripped Turkey during that time. Because, as you know, some of you know, uh, I work a lot uh, on uh, ethno-national conflicts uh, and uh, aggrieved groups you know, within states. Um, I soon came to realize, however, that I couldn't really get to grips uh, with that particular topic, on which I was not a specialist anyway, uh, on, on the country and that particular case, um, without first understanding the 
political history and the nature of the Turkish Republic that was established in the 1920s. Um, in the process, I explicitly realized something I had known, but more vaguely before, that this was the other major example of a non-Western state, uh, other than my own, I'm from India, which had loudly proclaimed uh, secularism, or strictly speaking in the Turkish case, lacism, to be a pillar of its identity since its formation. So that's by way of my personal rationale. <clears throat> I intended this book to be my first kind of book project uh, when I joined the LSE in 1999, 2000, uh, eons ago, um, and even wrote up a book proposal to that effect. And then I got diverted into all sorts of other uh, academic and non-academic preoccupations. Um, it was only three years ago, um, sometime uh, around this time in 2015, that it occurred to me um, that the original project I had neglected to pursue in the early 2000s was even more relevant to our times, even more topical than it was back then. Because what Turkey has experienced uh, in the last 15 years and at a steadily escalating pace in this decade of the 21st century is an anti-secular transformation of astonishing proportions. <clears throat> um, the electoral record of the AK Party and of President Erdogan uh, is simply spectacular. Uh, six consecutive parliamentary election victories since November 2002, all but one of those with uh, an absolute majority in parliament in the Turkish Grand National Assembly, um, two first-round you know, knockout victories for uh, Mr. Erdogan in direct presidential elections in 2014 and just this year, a few months ago, in 2018, victory in a system-changing referendum uh, last year, and other you know, victories uh, to, to boot. Um, compared to the collapse and the virtual, you know, de facto at least, eclipse of the secular state in Turkey and its replacement by a majoritarian Hanafi-Sunni Islamist definition of national identity, as the basis of a post-Kemalist Turkish state in this century, um, the anti-secular ascendancy in India is still in the making. Um, it's only in the last few years, since 2014, that the political party of the Hindu nationalist movement has commanded a slim uh, majority of its own in the directly elected chamber of India's parliament. But the longer-term trend of the anti-secularist ascendancy in India should not be underestimated. It was way back 22 years or 22 and a half years ago uh, in mid-1996 that the Bharatiya Janata Party or the BJP first emerged as the single largest party in Indian politics. 
And by an eerie coincidence, it was the same time in mid-1996 that Turkey's first civilian government, uh, dominated by Islamists, was formed, although it was forced out of office by military intervention only a year later, uh, in 1997. As we speak, some two-thirds, around 20, of India's 29 states that comprise the Indian Union are ruled by the Bharatiya Janata Party, either in most cases on its own or in a few cases in alliance with state-based regional partners or allies. This is astonishing because three decades ago, if we put our minds back to, let's say, October 1998, Hindu nationalism was not that much more than a speck on India's political landscape. So basically, Hindu nationalism, the anti-secular alternative uh, to the Indian secular state with its own notion of national identity, rooted in the concept of Hindutva, a political concept that originated in the 1920s and was elaborated in the 1930s, that movement has moved since the 1990s from the fringes to the very center stage of Indian politics. So what future for the secular state in the non-Western world, looking at these two exemplars? Let me start... Uh, with a working definition of what a secular state is. Uh, A secular state is one in which there is no official religion or state-established religion, i.e. the state's constitutional identity is not based on, tied to, or derived from any religious faith. Now, by this working definition... India and Turkey are both unmistakably secular states. Consider the slew of secularizing reforms that occurred in the first decade and a half of the Turkish Republic's existence, all in Mustafa Kemal's own lifetime. Well, uh, starting with the fairly summary abolition of the caliphate in 1924, Uh, the enactment of uh, a civil code uh, copied from Switzerland's uh, civil code of uh, 1912 in 1926, Uh, other codes borrowed from Germany and Italy. In 1928, uh, Article 2 of uh, the Turkish Republic's 1924 constitution, which had stated the religion of the Turkish state is Islam, was summarily deleted. In the late 1920s and into the early 1930s, the Arabic script was jettisoned in favor of the Roman script. Between the early 1930s and the mid-1930s, lacism, or laiklik, was incorporated into the program of the single party of the early Kemalist Republic, the JHP, or the Republican People's Party, as one of its six arrows or basic principles. And then, finally, in 1937, 
Turkey was formally declared a laser state, which it still remains uh, eight years later, albeit no more than nominally today. Um, what about the Indian secular state? Um, well, uh, the Indian constitution, uh, which is still valid, India has had only one constitution uh, in comparison to Turkey, which has had several. Um, the 1950 founding constitution of the Republic of India actually does not um, use the word secular. The word secular was inserted in India's constitution a quarter century later in <clears throat> 1976 uh, during a brief period of dictatorship that lasted for a year and a half known in India's political history as the emergency. Um, however, from the 1950s onwards, from the early 1950s onwards, if not even the late 1940s, before the Constitution formally came into effect, um, it became a central tenet of <coughs> official Indian discourse that India was a secular state. In, according to the definition that I just sketched out a few moments ago, that this was a pillar of the Indian Republic and the basis of India's uh, national identity. Uh, the state would be impartial and neutral, you know, vis-a-vis -vis all religions. And that continues to be the case nearly seven decades later, at least on paper. Uh, in mid-2017, <clears throat> a year and a half ago, the Attorney General of India, uh, who is the Republic's top legal official, faced some top, uh, tough questions uh, at a UN human rights meeting held in Geneva on alleged violations of the rights of uh, minority religions under the present post-2014 government of India. And in his rejoinder, uh, he said, actually he began by saying, India is a secular state with no state religion. You know, that is the basic reality. So that's still the constitutional and the formal reality. Of course, the actual reality, the political reality, has shifted over time. Okay. Um, the Indian and Turkish uh, secular states have similarities and differences. Um, this mix of similarities and differences is actually what makes them suitable for comparison. Um, it makes little or no sense to compare apples and oranges, you know, things which are absolutely different from each other. It also makes no sense, the logic of comparison is not there, to compare two things, you know, X and Y, which are almost totally similar, uh, i.e., they are carbon copies of each other. Uh, it's the mix of similarities and differences, um, the establishment of a secular state and its decline, in the case of Turkey, its virtual eclipse over time, but different and distinct political contexts, circumstances, and specificities that make India and Turkey comparable cases from a very basic social science methodological perspective. 
the key similarity of the Indian and Turkish secular states uh, is or was that uh, unlike the ideal typical Western conception or model of the secular state, the Indian and Turkish secular states are not based on any form or variant of the wall of separation doctrine. The measured and deliberate distancing of the state from the religious sphere. <coughs> Let me illustrate what I mean. The famous term in a wall of separation between church and state, or temple and mosque and state uh, in these non-Western contexts, um, was uttered in 1802 by Thomas Jefferson. Um, as something that was a bedrock of the United States. Uh, obviously not literally observed, but it was and remains to a substantial degree you know, one of the founding principles of the United States. Um, Jefferson's 1802 wall of separation uh, terminology was actually following on from the first amendment to the American Constitution which was passed in, 19, in 1791 and was proposed by James Madison of the Federalist Papers fame. And I believe the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution says, Congress, meaning the legislature, the federal legislature of the United States, shall make no laws respecting an establishment of religion. It will establish no religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Um, so there will be freedom of religion, but there shall be no state religion. Um, of course, this has only been imperfectly observed in the United States, but, for example, in 1948, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, ruled as unconstitutional um, the provision of public instruction uh, of religious instruction in the public school system of Illinois, the state of Illinois. And its ruling read, um, separation means separation. There cannot be, it is unconstitutional to offer any sort of religious instruction in the public school system of Illinois. Do it at home or in private schools, because separation means um, separation. There is, of course, also the French model uh, which is, in fact, very interventionist towards uh, the religious sphere, but it also formally disavows uh, interfering. Uh, it is formally you know, non-interventionist, but actually interventionist. The Indian and Turkish secular states are both uh, on paper, as well as in actual practice, interventionist. Both secular states, both these uh, republics, um, were set up uh, under their constitutional frameworks as self-invested with vast powers of supervision, intervention, regulation, and even outright control of the religious domain over matters religious, over the people and institutions of religion. So there is no state-society distinction either formally or in practice. 
the church versus state wall of separation simply doesn't exist, whether constitutionally, formally, or informally in actual practice. So let's recall that on the very same day, 3rd March 1924, that uh, the caliphate was abolished uh, after uh, hundreds of years, a new institution was put into place, uh, known uh, typically as the Dianet, or the Directorate General of Religious Affairs, uh, with vast powers of supervision, intervention, regulation, and control over the religious domain. And this was uh, an office attached to the Prime Minister's uh, office of Turkey, uh, whose head would be appointed by the Prime Minister on the recommendation of the President of the Republic. Now, India has not had, um, strictly speaking, uh, a Ministry of Religious Affairs uh, in the same sense, but anyone who's familiar with Articles 25 and 26 of the Indian Constitution, uh, among other uh, articles, will know that the Republic of India is similarly self-invested with vast powers of supervision, intervention, regulation, and control over religion and religious matters. So the Indian Constitution assures religious liberty for all, freedom of faith, profession, practice, propagation, but always subject to public order, morality, and health. And, of course, the ultimate interpreter of what constitutes or does not constitute public order, morality, and health is the state and those at the helm of the state. Uh, some of you will be familiar with a kind of a, a turbulent situation that is going on right now as we speak in the southern Indian state of Kerala uh, over the access of women in the age group of 10 to 50 uh, to a a kind of a, a 700 or 800 year old uh, hilltop shrine. Uh, women of that age group uh, were banned, uh, have always been banned from accessing that shrine um, on the grounds that they might uh, pollute uh, the, the shrine. And just a few weeks ago, the Supreme Court of India, which is of course the top judiciary of the Indian secular state, um, ruled this unconstitutional. Um, uh, uh, violative of, uh, of gender rights and gender equality and ordered that women and girls of that age group should be allowed access. So there have been a lot of popular protests against that. This is an example of the conundrum as it's playing out today. You know, religious freedom versus uh, the regulatory power of the state. Okay. Now, if the secular states of India and Turkey are not based on this principle, at least, of standing apart from the religious domain, but of constantly meddling, interfering in the religious domain in an interventionist way, in a regulatory capacity. Um, from the 1950s onwards, scholars of Turkey have called this the control model uh, of, uh, of secularism. Then, um, what follows, um, because what is happening from this very non-Western, you know, prototype of secular state, of which India and Turkey are both exemplars, is that the state is getting irretrievably entangled with the religious sphere. 
you know, rather than standing apart, you know, cultivating a measured distance, you know, whatsoever, uh, 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 of, of any kind whatsoever. Well, uh, in that case, the secularity of the state, because both these countries are republics, set up on the twin principles of uh, popular sovereignty and the equality of uh, all uh, citizens, at least, you know, notionally, on, on paper, you know, constitutionally, it becomes incumbent on these two non-Western secular states to treat adherents of all religions, confessional groups, you know, sects, denominations, uh, etc., in the letter and the spirit of strict equality, okay? Um, this might be called the impartiality principle or the impartiality criterion. If the state is irretrievably entangled with the religious sphere as this activist you know, player you know, all the time, then in order to be secular, it has to practice and implement that impartiality principle or the impartiality criterion. There shall be no preferential or discriminatory treatment for adherents of different religious and confessional traditions, different ways of you know, religious you know, practice and belonging, sects, you know, confessional identities of various sorts. Now, by the way, as many of you know, um, the notion that India is 80% Hindu um, actually, while true at some level, obscures an enormous degree of complexity and differentiation in Indian society. Uh, anyone remotely familiar with India knows this. Likewise, to some extent at least, the notion that Turkey is 99% Muslim and therefore a homogeneous country is also a myth. Uh, in fact, uh, Turkey is rife uh, with uh, confessional, ethnic, um, um, uh, sect, you know, denominational and ideological diversity. Uh, indeed, many scholars of Turkey have argued over the decades that the problem of chronic instability in Turkey stems from the fact that this plural nature of its society has not been reflected in the nature of its state, which has been rigid and focused, even fixated, on imposing a monolithic notion of identity from the formative period in the 1920s and 1930s on all citizens. Now, I would suggest to you that the gradual unraveling of, well, decisively so, uh, of the Turkish secular state and, to some extent, of the Indian secular state as well, um, lies in the fact that the impartiality criterion represents a rather tall political order. It is much easier said than done. You know, treating, you know, everybody, you know, regardless of their community and background, in the letter and spirit of strict equality and impartiality. Neither preference nor discrimination. As a result, over time, both the Indian and Turkish secular states um, attracted uh, the opposition, the criticism, um, and the dissent 
of the advocates and the agitators of both the majority and the minority viewpoints. And let me give a very quick you know, synopsis you know, regarding Turkey. In retrospect, at least, with the benefit of hindsight, it is clear that down the decades, um, very many people in Turkey uh, of a non-elite, you know, pious uh, background um, viewed or came to view the Kemalist secular state as being at odds uh, with the true essence as they saw it, you know, more or less, of Turkish national identity, the Hanafi-Sunni identity of the majority of the population. Um, as many of you are aware, the main confessional minority in Turkey um, consists of uh, a group called Alevis, who are um, estimated, because no one knows, they are not counted, um, the um, about 15 to 20% of the population, so about the same proportion or even maybe a little more than Muslims in India, India's largest religious minority. Um, and these Alevis are around two-thirds uh, ethnic Turk and one-third ethnic Kurd. Um, Alevis generally, especially the ethnic Turk Alevis, strongly supported the Kemalist secular state for obvious reasons, and most of them continue to do so because they prefer the secular state with all its imperfections to the majoritarian religious nationalist alternative, uh, <clears throat> which is even more you know, blatantly kind of discriminatory and exclusionary towards them. But at the same time, and not just with the Kurdish Alevis, Alevis, at least by the 1990s, increasingly came to feel that the Kemalist secular state uh, had failed to deliver down the decades true equality to them. And instead, it had harbored an insidious but deeply ingrained partiality towards the majority and majoritarian conception of national identity, uh, which was somewhat hidden uh, until the 1980s when it became open and even blatant. So this is a case of the Turkish secular state falling between the cracks. Uh, the um, mind the gap, as they say, on the tube. What about the Indian secular state? I don't have a lot of time, so I'm rushing through this, but I'm you know, throwing out the points as I go along. It's clear to me that even during the heyday decades of Indian secularism um, in the 1950s and 1960s, there is strong evidence that the Indian secular state um, had a habit of uh, pandering to, capturating to um, demands, um, for example, on cow slaughter, you know, one of the uh, major issues, raised uh, in the name of Hinduism, uh, typically, you know, by groups of uh, on the then kind of marginal kind of uh, uh, Hindu nationalist kind of uh, part of the Indian political spectrum, but with a lot of sympathy, if not direct support, in the then hegemonic you know, Congress party. So, for example, in my book, you know, there is a place where the guy who was the attorney general of the 
Indian secular state from 1950 to 1963 is saying in 1966 to 1967 that the essential spirit of Indian culture is Hindu. And India is a secular state only because the majority of its population is Hindu, and Hinduism is an uniquely tolerant religion. In that case, it's not really a secular state that views all faiths as equally valuable and equally intrinsic to the nation, but rather a soft Hindu state in which the other groups live on the sufferance of the majority because the majority is so generous and tolerant towards diversity, right? Now, this kind of partiality uh, becomes quite overt and even blatant in the 1980s. And those of you who are um, familiar um, uh, with uh, India at all, as I suspect many of you here today are, uh, will know uh, how uh, the 1980s governments, uh, first of Prime Minister Indira Gandhi and then of a son and successor, Prime Minister uh, Rajiv Gandhi, um, adopted a de facto Hindu majoritarian electoral strategy. Uh, Mrs. Gandhi you know, pioneered this in uh, the first half of the 1980s. She did not live to see its dividends because she got assassinated. Um, the dividends were reaped, at least for a time, by her son. Now, all of you remember the year, well, maybe not all of you remember, but I certainly do remember, as a schoolboy in India, um, the year 1986, when uh, the Rajiv Gandhi government intervened in the Shabano case uh, in a way detrimental to uh, the rights of uh, Muslim women. This was its way of appeasing uh, Muslim conservatives, and around the same time, the same government and its state government in Uttar Pradesh, uh, India's most populous and politically important state, uh, was complicit in throwing open uh, the gates of the disputed mosque uh, in Ayodhya to the agitators led at that time by the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, the so-called religious affairs affiliate of the Hindu nationalist movement. Um, in 1989, Rajiv Gandhi tried to piggyback on the rising you know, Hindu nationalist movement uh, to piggyback to power. He failed, but he kick-started his election campaign in the autumn of 1989 in Ayodhya, uh, and he promised to establish Ram Rajya, the mythical kingdom of Lord Ram, symbolizing all that is good if he was re-elected to power. This is the leader of the Grand Old Party of India and the Prime Minister of the Indian Secular State. Now note that something very similar is going on in Turkey at the same time, during the same decade, albeit under the people who had taken over as the ultimate arbiters of uh, Turkey's uh, politics uh, following Turkey's first military coup in 1960, the, the brass, the hierarchy of the TAF, the Turkish Armed Forces, the Turkish military. The 1980s was the decade of the so-called Turkish Islamic synthesis. And the ideology uh, that um, the AK Party has been propagating you know, very successfully uh, for the last uh, 15 years, first dressed up under the label of conservative democracy, 
uh, in the initial years of uh, AK Party power between 2002 and 2007 is simply another name for the Turkish Islamic synthesis ideology that was pushed by the Turkish military's brass as the de facto ideology displacing the original Kemalism, which was regarded as past its kind of sell-by date, even while paying lip service to it. Um, in other words, the secular states, and indeed the very principle of secularism in both India and Turkey, were undermined not so much by rejection at the popular level by people in general, but by the compromises made by those at the helm of the secular states um, always, but particularly during that crucial decade of the 1980s with the anti-secular opponents of the secular state and of the very principle of secularism. And this paved the way for the meteoric rise of the anti-secular alternatives and their vision, their very different vision of the basis of national identity and the nature of the state from the margins to the center stage from the 1990s and beyond. Um, and this is something that further coups could not stop in Turkey. Uh, the soft coup of 1997, um, the, uh, the threatened e-coup, which did not materialize in 2007, uh, the nearly successful judicial coup of 2008 in which the AK Party came within one vote in the Constitutional Court of being banned, you know, once again. Um, I remember when I first visited Turkey in 1999, uh, President Erdogan, except he wasn't president then, uh, was in jail. So I, I would have met him had I, you know, I was in Istanbul for a couple of months, and, uh, but he was in jail. Uh, because he had been forced to step down as the elected mayor of Istanbul and then sent to a short, sentenced to a short prison term uh, for anti-secular uh, pronouncements. And in fact, when the AK Party won its first election uh, with the plurality of the vote, but two-thirds of the seats, in 2002, at the end of 2002, um, Erdogan was still in uh, banned from, from politics. Uh, he only became prime minister in March 2003 once the ban was lifted. So this mixture of co-optation and repression employed by the Turkish military elite and its civilian allies was really fatal for prospects of secularism in Turkey because co-optation gave the anti-secular forces opportunities uh, to penetrate the state while repression turned them into martyrs. Today, um, there's an Erdogan personality cult which has practically displaced the old Ataturk personality cult and it was birthed at that time, nearly 20 years ago, because Erdogan became a symbol of the Muslim. Um, some of you will know, you know what that means to masses of pious Hanafi Sunni, God-fearing, non-elite people in Turkey. Okay, let me just turn back the differences between the Indian and Turkish secular states. There are significant differences. Um, first of all, the motivations for the establishment of the secular states are very, very different. Um, in the Turkish case, the Kemalists, the vanguard, the pioneers of the Turkish Republic, the founding elite, adopted a very simplistic tunnel vision kind of perspective 
which regarded Western modernity, often used interchangeably with European modernity. The terms Western and European civilization are often interchangeably used in Kemalist discourse as the only, the sole form of modernity. So Turkey uh, must depart the Orient, uh, which was identified with everything that is backward, atavistic, you know, unmodern, even barbaric, and enter the Occident, which is identified with everything that is the opposite of these terms. The result, in retrospect, was that Turkish, the Turkish secular idea, the Kemalist version of secularism, lacked cultural authenticity from the very outset. And after all, it's clear now that the Kemalist Republic, we are now in the post-Kemalist phase, the last 15 years only, lasted eight decades. That's a long time. But it failed to win over more than a substantial minority, a substantial minority, mind you, um, and I don't disparage this minority at all, uh, of the people of Turkey to its worldview and its vision of modernity, which included the secular idea. Um, you know, one just couldn't create another France, you know, by kind of fiat or by shotgun. The French secular state that emerged in the 20th century emerged through democratic contestation over more than 100, 150 years. Uh, it emerged because the secularists and the republicans eventually, from the late 19th century onwards, steadily demonstrated, consistently demonstrated more popular support than the clerical conservatives. Um, it was not a top-down imposition that was imposed you know, virtually overnight. Um, in a way, the Kemalist fixation uh, with the Occident and its rejection of the Orient, especially the Ottoman past, and indeed the history of Islam in Anatolia, which predates the rise of the Ottomans, which is 1,000 years old, it could never be thrown into the garbage heap um, you know, in the manner it was attempted to be, um, was an early example of what the Iranian critical intellectual Jalal Ali Ahmed called Garb Zadegi in Farsi, of Westoxication or Occidentosis when he critiqued the Shah's regime in Iran, which was also a top-down kind of modernizing regime. Uh, Ali Shariati, uh, often regarded as the ideologue of the Iranian revolution, although posthumously because he died in 1977, is best known for his writings on jihad and shahadat. But one of his most important essays, published in 1971, is called Return to the Self. Okay? Um, Turkey's first explicitly Islamist party was launched in January 1970. And the guy behind it uh, was a person, uh, an elderly person already at that time, the head of the Nakashwandi community in uh, Istanbul and the imam of the Iskender Pasha Mosque in Istanbul's, uh, in Istanbul's Fatih district, um, uh, Mehmet Zahid Kotku, known as Zahid Efendi to his followers. And Zahid Efendi, told some of his followers, among them uh, Nejmeddin Erbakan, the first Islamist prime minister of Turkey, briefly in 1996-97, that you can heal this wounded nation and you can do so by listening to what the Turkish Muslim people really want. 
What they want, he said, is a government that professes an Islamic sense of justice and the restoration of their Ottoman Islamic identity. So anyway, uh, when President Erdogan took his second term oath of office in early July, uh, he took it at a place uh, in Ankara, which was labeled the, uh, the Ottoman Islamic presidential kind of complex. Okay, so, well, the wheel has come full circle. The Kemalist revolution has been overturned and upended and reversed by a counter-revolution, which I don't mean in a disparaging sense either. What about the Indian argument for secularism? Contrary to what Hindu nationalists claim, spuriously, fraudulently, um, the Indian secularist argument, the founding logic of the Indian secular state, imperfect as it has been, um, has nothing to do with imitating the West. All right? Contrary to the Kemalist fascination with the West as the only model of civilization, the only form of modernity that Turkey must emulate, Turkey should not just become like the West, it has to become a Western country. You know, that was the objective. Um, Gandhi was once asked, you know, the uh, good old Gandhi, was asked uh, in the 1930s in London, uh, by a pompous and probably racist British journalist, Mr. Gandhi, what is your opinion of Western civilization? And the leader of the Indian independence movement paused for a second and then replied, I think it would be a good idea. And this became one of Gandhi's most famous uh, and cited one-liners. So this is the tradition, you know, the sartorial tradition of the Congress Party, you know, uh, assertively oriental. Um, as opposed to the Kabbalists outlying the fez, decreeing the top hat has to be worn, you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, other, other things, which many of you are familiar with. So what is the argument? It's a twofold argument, and, and, I'm, and I'm condensing, distilling a lot into this. Uh, the first argument for Indian secularism and for the secular state, uh, state based on this principle, that it is a practical and pragmatic necessity in a multi-religious society. Uh, a, a country cannot function except if the state regards all faiths as equal in the eyes of the law as well as in practice. That's the pragmatic or practical argument. The second of the twofold argument for Indian secularism is that, um, and the Indian secular state, is that... Um, this is a continuation of an important aspect of India's historical traditions. And what is that important aspect of India's historical inheritance and India's traditions? It's the, perhaps for pragmatic reasons mostly also, um, the ethos of mutual tolerance and everyday coexistence based on reciprocal respect of adherence of different religious faiths. It is by no means the only aspect of India's inheritance, um, but it is an important aspect of India's historical tradition. And the founders of the Indian secular state emphasized that the free India, the republic, was simply continuing that particular aspect of India's tradition. Now, um, 
put these two together, and I think it amounts to a fairly powerful argument. And I think it's safe to say that apart from the Hindu nationalists who were a marginal group at that time, uh, and as I said, until the late 1980s, the political spectrum in India was either favorably disposed towards this argument or at least not actively opposed, okay? That was the ideological basis of the Indian secular state. Um, Note the difference between the Kemalist example and the Indian example. The Kemalists explicitly emphasized, this is in Mustafa Kemal's own speeches, writings, you know, repeatedly, the rupture with tradition, okay? This was a truly revolutionary project, I have to say. Um, But it's emphasizing the rupture with tradition, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, if you ask me, while the Indian secularists are emphasizing continuity with tradition, exactly the opposite, that this is ingrained in our cultural ethos and our historical inheritance. Okay, the second big example, of course, you know, you might have guessed it by now, is that because of its kind of shotgun nature, top-down nature, without deliberation, without uh, popular support and consent, unlike the French model of racism it sought to emulate, um, the Turkish Kemalist version of state secularism had of necessity to be imposed uh, through repressive methods, which often took on extremely draconian forms. Uh, This started happening in the 1920s and 1930s. And I think, you know, um, although this is a complex kind of uh, issue, um, it is the simplest explanation for the recurrence of coups in Turkish political history, okay? The the chronic instability. Um, So basically, Kemalist state secularism, i.e. the Turkish variant of state secularism, from the very beginning practiced what might be called an elective affinity with authoritarianism, okay? The two went together, you know, as partners, you know, almost as twins. A lot of people in India reflexively think that there is an intrinsic connection between secularism and democracy based on their own experience. But the Turkish example among others, tells us that this is not the case. There is no intrinsic connection between secularism and democracy. A secular state, an avowedly secular state, can be paired with a deeply authoritarian polity, which is semi-authoritarian at times, a hybrid regime at other times, and openly authoritarian at yet other times. By contrast, the Indian concept of secularism and the Indian secular state developed as part and parcel of a flawed, as we all know, but functioning democracy. My intention is not to at all celebrate or romanticize India's democracy. Um, It has too many flaws and warts to do that. However, because I'm a comparative political scientist, I do comparative work across countries and regions, the achievement of India in building and sustaining even this flawed democracy 
should not be trivialized or demeaned. It is, in a comparative global perspective, a significant achievement. And as it turned out, um, Indian secularism, including the state secularism, uh, impartiality, neutrality, no state religion, developed as part and parcel paired with a democratic political regime, which makes it very different. You know, that is why this axiomatic but actually erroneous connection that secularist Indians often make between secularism and democracy. They can't think of one without the other. They can't think of their democracy without secularism, and they can't think of, they think secularism is inherently democratic, which is not the case. Okay. Um, let me, I'm coming towards the final section uh, of my talk because I've already spoken for let's say uh, 50, almost 50 minutes. And I promised Chandran to not bore him or you for more than an hour at the most. Um, let me suggest to you that um, while there has been this anti-secular transformation in Turkey, which to my mind is not reversible, uh, at least for the foreseeable future, um, uh, even if uh, President Erdogan were to somehow disappear tomorrow, uh, the Turkish secular state will not revive. Okay? Its structural contradictions are too deep. The disease of authoritarianism and the absence of cultural authenticity uh, from the very inception. Um, but that said, the continuities... Uh, between the Kemalist Republic and the phase we are in now of the post-Kemalist Republic are very striking. Uh, how so? Um, let me put it in this way, in somewhat colloquial terms. The Turkish state, the bottle is the same. The label has been modified somewhat to get rid of the arbiter role of the military uh, and the emphasis on lacism, obviously. Um, but, um, well, the material, the potion inside the bottle, also tastes different, I would say, from the Kemalist potion, but it is as bitter as the old Kemalist potion. It is just as intolerant of uh, diversity, dissent, and opposition. Um, the continuities between Kemalist and post-Kemalist Turkey are very striking, the anti-secular transformation notwithstanding. They are this worship, adulation, even the fetishization of the all-powerful state, the Devlet tradition. Um, the strong state, uh, which is probably rooted in Ottoman history, but was taken over by the Kemalists despite their apparent rejection of uh, everything Ottoman and indeed uh, uh, Islamic. Um, the second is, I've already mentioned, the personality cult of the great leader, okay, with Erdogan now displacing uh, Ataturk, the eternal chief, uh, as he was and still is known by diehard uh, Kemalists. And finally, the zero sum 
winner-take-all approach to power and to politics. In democracies, typically, um, politics is ultimately, you know, however contentious it may get, it's ultimately about finding compromises. It's about accommodation. It's about negotiation leading to accommodation and compromise. That's what democratic institutions are intended for. Uh, in the case of Turkey, because of the very strongly ingrained authoritarian state tradition, the perspective that prevails is this zero-sum winner-take-all approach. So you, what you have now is this personalized, you know, plebiscitary model of political power, which was already de facto the case and is now de jure the case with this nearly all-powerful, you know, constitutionally formalized and ratified executive presidency, which President Erdogan may hold for as long as until 2029, to the horror and despair of uh, the substantial minority of Turkish secularists. Um, so that's the political present and the future of Turkey. But one thing I want to do as an aside before I talk a little bit about India um, and the ascendancy of the Hindu nationalist movement uh, is that you know, I'd like to explode dichotomies, you know, binary dichotomies. Um, one of the more interesting chapters in this kind of seven-chapter book, I, I believe, having written it not very long ago, uh, is to show that authoritarianism is, can take either a secular or an anti-secular form. Uh, in fact, the Kemalist you know, secularism was embedded with the same authoritarian gene that the ideology of Hindu anti-secular Hindu nationalism is, except that one is professedly secular and the other is avowedly anti-secular, although they would deny that label. They say they are the true you know, secularists. Um, anyway, um, the, uh, um, let me speak a little bit about India. Is India going to meet the same political kind of fate as Turkey? Um, is there going to be a total eclipse of the Indian secular state? And will, what I call in the book, the pronounced Hindu nationalist ascendancy turn in the Turkish manner into an anti-secularist triumph and complete takeover of the state. Well, um, the, the president, the national president of the, of the BJP, the political party of the Hindu nationalist movement, uh, whose core, of course, as most of you know, is the RSS, uh, the Rashtriya Swamsevak Sangh. It has numerous affiliates as part of a Sangh Parivar, a family of organizations of which the BJP is the political party that competes in the political arena ever since 1951, 1952, uh, then under a slightly different name since 1980 as the BJP. Um, well, um, the, the, the BJP uh, is, uh, the current national president of the BJP is a, is a man called Amit Shah, who, like Prime Minister Modi, is from Gujarat and uh, close Kofidat of Prime Minister Modi. And he's the kingpin of the BJP's you know, nationwide organizational machine. And Amit Shah has said that his mission in life uh, will be accomplished only when every state in India, not two-thirds of the states, but 29 out of 29 states, 
has a Bharatiya Janata Party government. And where the BJP dominates from panchayat to parliament, panchayats are the rural bodies elected of uh, you know, self-governance, and parliament, of course, the bicameral Indian parliament is the apex of uh, the Indian political system, which is a parliamentary democracy. So that's the scale of the ambition, and it's openly stated, and they've made a lot of progress towards that. But this ambition may not be fully realized uh, for three reasons. Um, number one, uh, number one, um, the sheer scale of India's diversity. Um, it goes without saying that uh, India has 15 times Turkey's population, okay? Um, but it's not just a difference of scale and size. Um, Turkey is a much more diverse and plural country, as I said earlier, than is often acknowledged or believed to be. But um, the way I often convey uh, the diversity of India uh, to the uninitiated uh, is that it's sort of like the whole of the European Union of 28, soon to be 27 countries, albeit under the framework of a single polity. Okay? Now, this makes the full implementation, uh, according to this agenda, of a majoritarian conception of uh, homogeneity inherently difficult. Okay? And it's far from clear that this can be realized. You know, this ambition could falter simply because of the social reality of India as a country. The second big difference with Turkey is the political structure. The way governance and power is structured matters crucially in political struggles and political outcomes. Um, well, Turkey has always been a unitary and centralized state. Okay? What does this mean? This means that anybody who successfully captures the central state in Turkey, in Ankara, the capital established by the Kemalists during originally the Turkish War of Independence, which led to the Turkish secular state, basically gets their hands on all the decisive power, the power that's worth having. And once in the last you know, number of years, post-2008, uh, Erdogan and company managed to successfully neutralize and defang the military, something I never thought would happen, as the ultimate arbiter of Turkey's politics, and with that record of you know, victories, you know, one after the other, parliament, presidency, referendum, you know, bang, 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 it seems to go on. It has to end at some point, but you know, hasn't ended yet. Um, the, uh, basically, he has cornered, in his personalized and plebiscitary style, the Turkish central state and captured all the power, the truly decisive power that's worth having. Uh, India's political structure, fortunately, from the constitution of 1950 uh, onwards, um, it's much more decentralized. I would say it was moderately decentralized, kind of a hybrid of a 
uh, unitary but decentralized state and, the, and a full-fledged federation uh, based on the autonomy of states formed incrementally between the 1950s and 1970s broadly on the linguistic principle that all of the major language groups should have their own states. Now, as many of you know, since the 1990s, this de facto, you know, well, not de facto, de jure, constitutionally mandated, moderately decentralized political structure has evolved very rapidly in a quasi-federal direction to the extent that even the Hindu nationalists who always ideologically upheld the ideal of a unitary and centralized state have now adopted a new slogan in the Modi Shah era, which I call Hindutva 2.0 in my book, the second coming of Hindutva, the first coming was in the 1990s, of cooperative federalism. In other words, they have adjusted the, their doctrine to the political reality of India in the early 21st century, which is not just of an incredibly diverse society, um, but also of a fractured and fractious polity. Okay? So what this means that, well, it remains to be seen that in the general election, which is now due only a few months away, whether the BJP will be able to return, um, you know, with a simple majority in the, in the Lok Sabha, the directly elected chamber of India's parliament, most uh, commentators, including you know, privately you know, pro-BJP people or even outrightly BJP people, consider that a repeat performance is on balance unlikely. Although I have little doubt that the BJP will emerge as the single largest party and uh, probably the, by far the single largest party, it's the preeminent political force on the Indian political scene. Moreover, states the states which have really become important in the era of de facto federalization since the 1990s, states have not only to be one, you know, one at a time, but also, even more important, retained, you know, one at a time, uh, retained. It won't do to win Uttar Pradesh, as the BJP did in 2017, and lose it in 2022. That's, you know, that's useless. So states have to be won, one at a time, then retained, in order to fulfill this goal of nationwide hegemony, which alone can enable a Turkey-style anti-secular transformation of the Indian state. Um, and the third and final difference with the Turkish example is actually more attitudinal. Um, this can fall under uh, a somewhat fuzzy political science concept, which I always found a bit dodgy, uh, called political culture, but it is not useless. Um, attitudinally, because it has been a successfully functioning democracy for nearly seven decades now, with all its flaws and warts, uh, by and large, uh, India's citizens are attitudinally much more inclined to democratic values than, without demeaning anybody, comparatively speaking, the people of Turkey are, most of whom are clearly in the thrall of that strong state tradition, whether the previously hegemonic secularist version or the currently hegemonic anti-secular version. Okay? So um, I'm not sure that Hindu nationalism can realize its anti-secular agenda 
um, I'll finish by saying that um, a lot of uh, secularists and pro-secularists in India, um, just as they questionably celebrate, you know, um, Hinduism's allegedly unique virtue of tolerance, which can lead to a dangerous conclusion. This is something that Hindu nationalists also emphasize. They claim that Hinduism is not Hindutva, their political ideology, which is, they say is derived from that, is uniquely tolerant. Okay? Um, and uh, uh, this leads to a dangerous conclusion that there is no need for a secular state as such. India can simply be a Hindu state, right? Where the innate generosity and tolerance of Hinduism will ensure a paradise for all, Hindus and non-Hindus alike. Um, the, um, uh, the, uh, the, the other mistake or that Indian state secularists make, I, I believe, and there's a lot of criticism of the really existing Indian secular state and of Indian state secularists in this book, um, is that um, they, uh, apart from conflating the Indian secular state with Hindutva, which is questionable and politically possibly dangerous, is that they say that the Hindu nationalists want to create, want to turn India into a Hindu version of Pakistan, which I can understand, okay? Uh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah's ideology fused religion, nation, and state. So does the political concept of Hindutva. I can understand that. Fine. So there is a, a, a similarity that is more than superficial. But Pakistan has been, as we all know, a military-dominated state for last 60 years. India is, by, by contrast, a highly evolved democracy. So the goals of Hindu nationalism have to be realized in a way that is compatible with the democratic polity, with the prevalent attitudes of the Indian people, with India's political structure, and also taking into account, if that's possible, India's stunning scale of social diversity. And the prototype or role model for the Hindu nationalist movement, which is intent on remaking the very nature of the Indian state based on their ideology that the essence of Indian nationhood resides in the homogeneity, the essential homogeneity, uh, with, of course, differences, which they now acknowledge, and even inequalities, of that 80% of the population, that prototype is actually not Pakistan, it's Israel, you know, which is a so-called ethnic democracy, which is a state that has democratic institutions and procedures. Uh, however, it is, well, it was self-described as a Jewish and democratic state until last July, and now it's described as the nation state of the Jewish people, which respects the rights of all its citizens. Uh, in other words, the state is identified with, belongs to a particular group, which happens to be a majority of the citizenry, and other citizens are de facto second-class citizens, you know, tolerated. And there are other examples of the ethnic democracy prototype, Croatia, declared its sovereignty as the national state of the Croatian people, Sri Lanka, which has been a singular Buddhist majoritarian supremacist state for over 60 years now and so on. But whether the Republic of India um, can be turned, it's a country of 1.3 billion people after all, uh, can be turned into a giant-sized version of Israel or Sri Lanka or Croatia remains to be seen. We will find out soon enough in the next five to ten years at most. I'll end on that note. Thank you very much for listening. We have a little time for questions, and uh, Chandran will moderate the Q&A. I can stand here, Chandran. Yeah, okay, okay, good. Um, well, 
floor is open. Yes, here. So my question is relating to India. Um, you said uh, that you speak a little louder. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you said that the seeds of Hindu nationalism were sown in the 1980s. So roughly around that time, and not as we, you know, not particularly in 2014, which is seen as the ascent of Hindutva. So uh, what do you think took so long to for Hindutva politics to become so dominant uh, with regards to India? And second, uh, about the three factors that you said that you think uh, uh, towards the end where you spoke that, uh, talked about. So uh, one, when you say that the sheer scale of India's diversity will not make it a Hindutva nation, how, how do you explain uh, BJP's ascent to power in the northeast or, or maybe even Kashmir, which is predominantly uh, 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 you know, a different kind of electorate. Even if they came in power with the PDP, that doesn't matter. But they still uh, were able to form a government there. And when you talk about the attitudinal um, uh, factor, how do you explain BJP's uh, rise to power in Uttar Pradesh following 2014 election when, you know, a large majority was already exposed to the insidious nature of Hindutva politics in 2014 and in 2017 in the largest state of the country, they were able to come to power with an unprecedented majority? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a lot of questions. I, I'll try to be uh, fairly brief in my responses to allow more people time to come in. Uh, yes, well, um, the 1980s in retrospect was the decade in which the ground was, the path was paved for the rise of Hindu nationalism in the 1990s. So from two seats, as you know, in the... Um, out of 543 in the 1984 to 89 parliament, um, the BJP goes to uh, 161 seats, the single largest party. That's a stunning advance in the space of less than a decade. Of course, there are vagaries of electoral politics. Um, the fractured nature of, um, there are vagaries of electoral outcomes, the fractured and fractious nature of Indian politics, the sheer complexity of its society. So the BJP led two coalition governments under the recently deceased uh, former Prime Minister Atal Bihari Vajpayee, but it suffered a shock defeat in 2004 and it couldn't recover from that until Modi came along uh, or he rose out of Gujarat and, uh, and kind of renovated um, you know, uh, Hindu nationalism and its message with what I call Hindutva 2.0 in the book. And it's a more sophisticated uh, and more effective version of the brute majoritarianism around the temple mosque agitation that LK Advani fronted in <clears throat> the early to mid 1990s. Uh, very interesting, I mean, it's, it's all in the book, that uh, the, the adjustments with reality um, the virtual abandonment of Swadeshi or self-reliance, the embrace of globalization, of global capital and investment, um, the attempted cooptation of middle and especially lower castes, which has been there for a while, but it's been given a new urgency under Hindutva 2.0 to make the BJP a really pan-Hindu party and get it away from the deeply Brahminical, mainly Maharashtrian Brahminical roots, 
uh, that the RSS, the parent you know, organization, is stamped with. And then the discourse of cooperative federalism. Okay? Now, you see where the cooptation of subaltern castes and the discourse of cooperative federalism is coming in. If the BJP cannot be painted plausibly as either an upper caste party uh, or an anti-federal party, okay, then it becomes much easier to position the communal cleavage with the essential Muslim other as the main political cleavage, which is the ultimately the fallback electoral strategy for the Hindu nationalist movement. Stripped down to its bare fundamentals, uh, Hindu nationalism has, the ideology of Hindu nationalism has two pillars. Uh, the organic homogeneity of the 80% Hindus, that's more than a billion people, so that's a large chunk of the world's population, and the status of the Muslim as the essential irreconcilable other. The Muslims of the subcontinent uh, prior to the partition and the Muslims of India since then. So it all dovetails you know, quite neatly. Now, uh, you asked some specific questions about Uttar Pradesh and so on. Uh, in 2014, you know, in, there was a Modi wave in, in northern and western India. Um, uh, he's a very, he has been so far a very successful dream merchant. Um, um, the question is whether the dream will unravel at some point and a nightmare will set in. Um, the, uh, um, 2017 is much more interesting, uh, but as you know, the, the most mundane explanation for that is the disunity of the opposition parties, especially the two major regional parties of Uttar Pradesh. This is not a satisfactory explanation. There are many other factors involved, which I can't go into right now, but it is an important part of the explanation for this sweep, okay? Or 40% plurality is resulting in a huge majority. You know, 73 of the 80 parliament seats from Uttar Pradesh, 325 counting the small allies of 403 seats in Uttar Pradesh in the assembly and, and so on. Now, um, uh, if those two, the SP and BSP, uh, were to come together uh, next year as they are promising to do or threatening to do because their own survival depends on it, then, you know, electoral arithmetic does matter, okay? That could be a game changer, right? Uh, combined with some disillusionment uh, among some social groups with the Modi magic, okay? Um, however, let me say one more thing. Um, you know, I'm not one of these people that, you know, thinks opposition unity is the fix to everything, right? Um, it, I say quite clearly in the book, you know, nor will cobbling together, you know, uh, kind of coalitions of uh, anti-BJP parties necessarily halt the Hindutva juggernaut over the longer term. It may work once, you know, or even twice. But, uh, uh, okay, uh, what, uh, you, know, uh, you know, what I say in the book is that Indian state secularists really need to reflect on the real frailties of Indian secularism. And I couldn't go into all of that in my talk because I already spoke for more than an hour. But it's all there in, in the book, especially in the concluding chapter and in some of the other <clears throat> chapters as well, that um, uh, the politics of secularism has become, over the decades, largely devoid of substance 
an empty opportunistic slogan. So anyone who is, happens to be electorally opposed to the BJP and to the, uh, the Hindu nationalist movement is axiomatically secular. This is an empty definition of secularism which denudes the concept of any real substance. Yeah? So you know, this will just not do. You know, I'm secular because I'm anti-BJP. I mean, this, is, this has become more or less acceptable. So, um, you know, secularism already in the 1990s became the last resort of the scoundrel, right? And the BJP over time has capitalized on that and exploited it. So, you know, one needs to kind of reinvigorate the concept of Indian secularism. You know, impartiality, you know, that's why, although the Hindu nationalist movement has been doing this for its own reasons, uh, such things as the triple talaq debate and so on are important to have, okay? Um, such debates as a uniform civil code are important to have, okay? Um, the Indian secular state has never appeased Muslims. The Rajiv Gandhi government was guilty of parallel appeasement of the most dubious demands raised in the name of both Hindus and Muslims in the second half of the 1980s. So it's guilty of parallel uh, appeasement, you know, at worst. But um, because uh, the directive principle, Article 44 of the Constitution says that the state should strive towards a uniform civil code, there's a grain of truth that a state is not really secular if there are different laws, you know, governing different groups of citizens by religion, which you don't have in Turkey in that form, by the way. It's an anomaly that the Turkish you know, a secular republic did not have for all its other weaknesses. You can't have different sets of laws on personal and familial matters for Hindus, Muslims, and Christians and still claim to be a, a secular state. Or the triple talaq debate. You know, this is being exploited by the Hindu nationalists to further their own political agenda, to barbarize the Muslim other, you know, further. But there is a real issue here that even if its incidence is the exception rather than the norm, Muslim women can be divorced in a manner that women of other religious communities of India cannot be. This is violating uh, the principle not just of gender equality, but of the equality of citizens, regardless of religion, which is an essential uh, trait of the secular state. I'll stop there. Mm -hmm. um, over there? Yes. Um, I wanted to learn how you view economics as actually playing a role in the path that Turkey is going through. Because all, when you look at the voting trend in Turkey, they, Erdogan had the most support in tw um, 2007 mm -hmm. when they, he was actually employing dervish policies for economics. And now the economics is like going downhill really fast. And how you see this will affect the supporters or the irreversible path? Just off the top of my head, uh, if anything undermines uh, the AKP's hegemony uh, in, in Turkey, it will be the economy. But as in India, alternatives have to shape up to capitalize on that window of opportunity. Uh, if you have inept alternatives, uh, it's not going to work uh, because you know whatever else you know President Erdogan you know I have tremendous respect for his political skills okay 
Um, I may have you know, negative things to say about him in private or even in public, but he's a very, very skilled and successful politician. And uh, the, uh, he's demonstrated it you know, time and again. And uh, you know, this is a formidable adversary, okay? Um, not someone to be laughed at or mocked as some of these metropolitan secularists were doing even 10 years ago. Who is this guy, you know, uh, where has he come from, you know, etc. Uh, he's so third rate and, you know, this and that, you know, mockery essentially, which <laughs> hasn't gone anywhere and has in fact helped him uh, with the masses. Um, well, uh, about the economy, you know, I can't speculate. As social scientists, we are taught not to speculate, but I already told you that any, anything undermines the, uh, the AKP's uh, hegemony and Erdogan's personal popularity um, to a uh, tied together, it will be the economy. Now, of course, the bad news for people in Turkey is that um, uh, in the second half of the 20th century, from 1960 onwards, Turkey de developed a pattern of generating a military coup every 10 years. Okay, And Turkey also, uh, since the late 1950s, has an established pattern of, of uh, having an economic collapse every 20 years. So in the late 1950s, there was an economic collapse, or near collapse, which led to the, one of the factors that led to the downfall of Adnan Menderes and the, and the, uh, deep, and the DP. Uh, late 1970s, there was, among other crises, another real economic collapse, um, which was a major factor for the very violent military coup of 1980, among other factors. And then Ozal managed to turn it around a little bit, but superficially. Then, you know, um, the most recent one was 2001, another collapse, which comprehensively discredited the, uh, the, the secularist political establishment and paved the way for the AKP as the, as the REFA's successor uh, party, the main successor party, and relatively untainted by all this to power, you know, somewhat fortuitously in November 2002, but then they consolidated their hegemony uh, down the years. So that's, you know, that's my answer to it, that if that pattern holds, then Turkey is looking, if it is not already there, at another economic collapse. And the question is what the political ramifications will be, because there have been very serious political ramifications on all the three previous occasions. The ouster of Menderes and the first military coup, 1960, the, the violent military coup, very repressive of 1980, and the beginning of the transformation of Turkey's politics from 2002 um, onwards. So, um, uh, of course, President Erdogan is very good at messaging, so he's been consistently blaming it on others, okay? And the question is, how long will how many people buy this displacement of responsibility, uh, especially since his own son-in-law uh, is now the finance minister, so it's all in the family? Not Ali Baba Jan or, uh, or Kemal Dervish or, you know, uh, whoever else in the past. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think we'll try to take one last question maybe over, oh, over there. Uh, uh, and we've only got a minute left. So. Yeah, do we need to wrap up exactly at eight? Yes, I, I think we do. Yes, okay. we, we're right. pretty okay. strict here. So. I'm happy to answer a few questions informally if you, if you like. I went on too long, I know. Cut short the Q&A time. Yeah. Hi. Um, I just had a question regarding the Indian secular state uh, and regarding the Bharatiya Janata Party or the BJP. Mm -hmm. And as you said that one of the main objectives is uh, Hindutva or 
or at least what the opposition says is that's what they're practicing. What about um, the states such as Tamil Nadu towards the south, which has a very high population of non-Hindus? Uh, what do you think would the, would the strategy be to conquer them, especially now that uh, in public the ideology is at least in the mindset that you know they're a very Hindu-based party and they won't uh, they won't be supportive to us. And in case this uh, in case in some eventuality they do end up with a majority even there and even all, all 29 states of India, what do you think? Would, would, be, would be the mindsets, mindsets of the people? Would they start considering India to be an anti-secular country? <coughs> because uh, it's not about paper at all, is it? It's about the mindsets and the superiority and inferiority complex that develop within people. Okay, uh, I've got it. Uh, I'll respond to the best of my ability. Um, uh, uh, Tamil Nadu, by the way, this is India's deep south state uh, with a very different culture and political context from the north or indeed anywhere else in India. The Tamils are in their own league. They have always been. Um, and I mean that in a good way. Um, the uh, uh, Tamil Nadu doesn't have a high population of non-Hindus as such, but its ethos is very different from you know, uh, North India. It does have reasonably significant Christian and Muslim minorities. Uh, now, uh, this is a partly a response to the first question, that the BJP has still not made the decisive inroads in eastern and southern India that it wants to make. Okay? So the question is whether it will you know, be able to do that uh, in the immediate future. You know, that's, they're straining every nerve. They're targeting my home state, West Bengal, uh, okay, among others. They are targeting Kerala in the south in a big way. Uh, Kerala is only 55% Hindu. Uh, it's 27% uh, Muslim and 18% Christian, okay? But they believe that if they can achieve the polarization uh, between Hindus and the non-Hindus, then they are in a position to make a breakthrough. Um, okay, um, in response to your question, I'm picking up on something that is in the book as well. Um, what differentiates Hindutva 2.0 of the Modi Shah era uh, from... Um, well, Hindutva 1.0, I guess, of the 1990s, Advani, and then in a much more moderate and modulated form, you know, the Vajpayee era uh, that happened, uh, is that um, uh, Hindutva 2.0, the current contemporary form or incarnation of Hindutva, is uh, uh, Janus faced. Uh, you, know, you know, Janus, the Roman god. Uh, you know, uh, he has, the fellow has two faces, uh, looking in different directions, this way and that way, but jutting out, you know, from the same head and mounted on the same neck. And um, the, the twin kind of strategy that Modi has used very successfully and had put his personal brand on it, you know, much like Erdogan, uh, is that... Uh, um, one, one face is the benign face of development, modernization, progress, okay? which the AKP first government of 2003 to 2007 also emphasized, rather than its core ideological beliefs and agenda. That came later, all right? Um, now, the other face uh, is... Um, a much less benign face, perhaps even a rather nasty, ugly face. And this is inscribed, the second face, uh, not with the semi-elderly, semi-stern visage of Prime Minister Modi, 
but with a much younger and overtly menacing visage, uh, perhaps symbolized best by the self-proclaimed protectors of the cow who've been sporadically running amok uh, in BJP-ruled states um, uh, since the last few years. So that is the other face. But it's also very similar to the Erdogan AKP policy because the AKP's rhetoric you know, still you know, emphasizes you know, often very grandiose plans of modernization, development, progress, what we call in India uplift, you know, reaching out to everyone, especially the disadvantaged. And, you know, they used to say until a few years ago that uh, when they came to power for the first time, uh, a third of the population of Turkey was in poverty, and now only a few percentage points are in poverty, uh, et cetera, et cetera, which is, I think, partly true, although it is exaggerated. So there is this message, and there is this other, you know, core kind of anti-secular kind of message and agenda. Uh, now, Modi needs, because your question pertains to India, Modi needs to find a fine balance between the two faces of the Janus. Because even if you were to want to, which he definitely doesn't, um, Vajpayee actually, I think, partly did want to. He can't jettison the second face, the face of intolerance, Okay, the face inscribed with that menacing kind of visage. I remember those who destroyed the temple, and the cow protectors of today are their, you know, descendants. You know, literally speaking, this is the next generation of the stormtroopers and the vigilantes. But he needs to find a, a, a fine balance between that and the other face, which actually appeals, as you know, to a wider audience and to a much greater number of people. Um, very frankly, I've been a bit surprised because I thought that Prime Minister Modi would, like the AKP, you know, the first Erdogan government did in its first term, 2003 to 2007, would actually emphasize the first benign face, the developmentalist face of, of the Janus the you know, modernization, progress, and so on, and get to the other business only after winning the second general election and being more established, more consolidated. But I was rather surprised, but maybe I shouldn't be surprised, that the other face also became very uh, kind of obvious and active uh, you know, very quickly. Perhaps they can't control their you know, instincts. It could be. So, you know... So that is, that is the issue, you know, where, because the, both the faces, you know, will, will be there. The question is, will the second face put off more people than the first face attracted? You know, where, where is it going? So it's, it's uncertainty, and the future of the Indian secular state, whose dismantling and the rejection of any principle of secularism in India is the ultimate goal of the Hindu nationalist movement, the future of the secular Indian secular state and the future of the secular idea or principle in India is still open. It could go either way, but we'll know for sure, sure in a few years' time. Not a long wait. Thank you.